name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's been an eventful day in Jerusalem and its neighboring towns. It's always so when Passover approaches and Jews from all over the world begin to descend on the city. Every inn and every hostel and every family home and tavern is filled with guests and there's a holiday spirit in the air as people are gathering on this occasion. But this particular pre-Passover season is even more electrified than usual. Jesus of Nazareth has come down from the north and today he's entering the city in a procession from Bethany. And that procession thrilled almost everyone who witnessed it. There has not been a welcome to a visitor in Jerusalem like this since Alexander the Great, 300 years ago, came into the city as a passive conqueror. What a day it's been when he and his friends rounded the crest of the Mount of Olives and came into view from the city, carrying their palms, singing the psalms, and escorting him as he rode along on the foal of a donkey. Everyone began singing, and the sound of the psalms echoed across the valley. The faces of the children were bright and full of expectation as this Jesus and his party came down the mountain and into the city. His disciples and the multitude that were there rejoiced and praised God with loud voices for all his mighty works that they had seen Jesus do. (coughs) The crowning event of these mighty works was the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which would happen happen just a little before this. And it was while he was riding along, and the people were crying out and saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, that some of the Pharisees took offense. You see, they like, and frankly, they're accustomed to, being the center of attention. Just about everything they do, from the way that they dress to the way that they talk and walk, is designed to draw the eyes of everyone in their direction. They didn't like the fact that this carpenter from the north, from despised and worldly Nazareth, who spent his time hanging around Galilee, a place heavily influenced by Gentiles, was enjoying this sort of attention and praise. They also recognized that he was being hailed as the Messiah, and they seemed a bit worried that this might raise concerns among the Romans. Some have suggested that even when they were telling him to be quiet, they were kind of nodding with their heads towards the Tower of Antonia, where the Roman soldiers were being held or barracked. During the noisy procession, just before they came in sight of the city below, some of those Pharisees leaned in towards Jesus and said to him above the cries of the people, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, or tell them be quiet. 
and to stop saying these things. There was a good deal of grumbling among them, and they warned Jesus to censure and and to admonish his followers. And his answer was short, and it was to the point. He simply said, and we read it a moment ago, Roman ago, in Luke 19.40, I tell you, or I am telling you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That is, it will inevitably be that if the people did not give God glory for these things, the stones would cry out and do so. Now, these words of Jesus have generated a lot of thoughts among scholars and commentators over the years. As a common proverb, it was understood to convey the idea that you could think of it this way, that it would be harder to get the people to be quiet than it would be to get the stones to speak up. That's sort of the, the, um, the idea behind this, this proverb. Um, it would be harder to get these people to stop praising God for what he's done than it would be to get the stones to speak up. Ostersee, uh, a commentator very respected by Spurgeon, says, if he has previously considered the de- declaration of his dignity as dangerous, that is Jesus, if he thought that declaring who he was was a dangerous thing in the past, he now counts silence as inconceivable. In other words, looking at the past, remember he was telling people not to say anything and to keep it quiet and not to talk about who he was. And he was working to do that in the past, but now he seems to count it inconceivable that there would not be attention drawn to him. Now, some say that it would be the very stones of the temple that would speak against the unbelief and the jealousy of the Pharisees. When the, the temple was destroyed by the Romans a short time later, um, that that would be the moment. Those stones would fall, the, the great stones of the temple, and when they came down, it would be a rebuke of the Pharisees. Uster, uh, Usterzee, excuse me, again says, the stones of the temple of Jerusalem have not been the only ones which in the most literal sense of the word proclaim the glory of God and his anointed. And what he's referring to there is the fact that As archaeologists dig and unearth more and more material, they're contributing to the unbroken chorus of praise to God for his wonderful works and his grace to the children of men through the work of the Messiah. In a very real sense, where men and women would wish for silence, the stones keep crying out. I keep hoping that it won't be that way, but it keeps ending up being that way. In fact, the efforts to silence the stones are relentless, and consequently, any relic or rock that can be hammered or squeezed into the support of any theory that challenges the word of God gets wide public exposure. But I suspect that even most Christians are unaware of the most extraordinary archaeological uh, discoveries of the last few years that are the result of following the Bible 
and looking for things that it describes. Because those things are hidden, they're smothered, they're not given the same public attention as those that would perhaps suggest there's something inaccurate in the Word of God. Now, I'm deliberately shying away from saying that these discoveries confirm the Bible or support its veracity. Because the reality is really the other way around. It's the Bible that tells you where to look for truth. It's the Bible that is the the book that tells you where to start looking for things. So here's a headline from JNS, which is the Jewish News Service. It's June 26th, not that long ago of this year. According to a study by researchers at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, the kingdom of Judah expanded earlier than was previously believed by archaeologists, confirming biblical accounts. I would just ask, how many of you saw that headline in the news? Because the critics of the Bible have said all along that David's kingdom really wasn't all that great. And the Bible exaggerates it. And it didn't really spread that far. And we can prove it because we don't have any evidence of its greatness beyond this point. Well, now archaeologists have discovered, oh, yeah, it actually did extend this far. And so they don't want that admitted. They don't want that agreed to. Headlines like this get some exposure, but they'll never get the public play that a picture of a rock on Mars will get. You know, if they get a picture of a rock on Mars, it doesn't look like every other rock on Mars, which is pretty hard to imagine. That'll be frontline news. We found a rock on Mars. And they'll get it up there. And, And maybe this rock possibly could perhaps suggest that maybe, perhaps, there might be life somewhere else. Maybe, perhaps. It might suggest that. And that's the headline. But headlines like this, where there's evidence of the extension of David's kingdom, we don't want to talk about that. News like this doesn't confirm the Bible. Like this headline I just read to you from the Jewish News Service, it doesn't confirm the Bible. It doesn't confirm the biblical account. It debunks critics, and the theories of those who seek to undermine the biblical accounts. That's what it does. The Bible doesn't need confirming from these things. The Bible is the truth. They're the ones who are suggesting something else, and their suggestion is the thing that has been debunked. Denying the reliability of the Bible until it's proven otherwise is their, is their job, practically. And it happens repeatedly that they get debunked, and yet they're shameless. If you turn over, if you want to in your Bibles, to Jeremiah chapter 20, there's an interesting, sad, but interesting scene there in the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And we read there that now Pashur, the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, Then, which had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day, when Pashur uh, released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, 
The Lord does not call your name Pasher, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. Then they shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon, shall strike them down with a sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, and all the treasuries of the king of Judah into the hand of their enemies, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. Now, in this story, we're not going to look at actually what's taking place here with Jeremiah, but I just want you to note a few things in the story. Um, first of all, the family mentioned is that of Immer, I-M-M-E-R. And it's his son, Pasher, who is the chief officer of the house of the Lord. And then you note that when it talks about him, it talks about his family or his household. And the third thing to note is that is the specific reference there in verse 5 about the wealth of the land. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies who will plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. Now, these things happened 600 years before Christ or for our purposes, 2,600 years ago. And Micah, that's even older than I am. 2,600 years ago. It's a long, long time ago. Long time ago. Now, here in the present, archaeologists are excavating an area near the Temple Mount. And they're digging in what they believe to have been the treasury of the temple prior to the Babylonian captivity. And they've unearthed dozens of little clay stones that uh, are called seals or were used as seals. So if you had a bag of coins or a bag of precious stones or any really any commodity, it would be tied up if it was going to be stored in this treasury. It would be tied up And then those who were tasked with keeping track of those collections of these treasures and all the commodities belonging to the temple or the king would tighten the cord or the ribbon used to close the bag or to seal the jar. And then they would take a piece of soft clay and they would press it into that ribbon or into that rope or cord on the one side. And then on the other side, the side facing outwards, they would press their ring or a stone that had a particular symbol cut into the end of it so that it would make an impression on the clay. And that would be the seal that would account for that money, those stones, whatever the commodity was. Laura Gibb, a researcher, says, evidence has been found that the remains of the broken sealings 
uh, were saved in order to document the number of times that the storage area was open. So if you had one of those pouches and you were opening it for some reason to take out something, you would break that seal, break that piece of clay, and then you would hold on to that, and then you would put a new one on, and they would keep the one to see, well, that's been into once, or it's been into five times, or this particular bag has been opened six times or ten times or whatever. That's what she's saying here. Now, the TMSA, which is the Temple Mount uh, Sifting Project. Let me repeat that. This Temple Mount Sifting Project. Uh, this, the re researchers there wrote, thus, this method of securing commodities also served as a system of bookkeeping. In addition, by examining the names of the officials appearing on the type of ceilings, it is possible to ascertain the names of the chief administrator of the treasury as well as to establish the fact that those who assisted him were generally members of his family. Now go back to the days of Jeremiah. The sons of Immer would be charged with this task. They would be the ones with the seals and the rings. The bags would be tied. The clay, little clay uh, forms would be put on them, and they would press the ring into them or the stylus into it. So if you wanted to find a piece of clay that had Immer's name in it, where would you go to find it? Wouldn't you go to this treasury house and look there to find it? And guess what? They're there. They're there. They've gone. They've gone through this area. And there they are. These clay stones with this image on it that is from the ring, not of Pasher yet. They haven't found any of his, but they found some from the, who, the man they believe to be his brother because he's called Ishmir the brother, I mean the son of Imer. So he's got the same name um, and, and listed as the son of Imer. So you find what you're looking for by going to the place where the Bible says it, will, it can be found. And so it's no surprise that when you're sifting through uh, the, the stuff, the ground there that's in this particular treasury house, you should come up with these clay um, seals. And uh, as I said, it's very likely that it was his brother. The Temple Mount Sifting Project is an effort that's been going on for 18 years. And they're sifting through tons of dirt shoveled off the Temple Mount and into the Kidron Valley by the Muslims during a construction project. And lots of things are found in that dirt. Hundreds of thousands of people have participated in this sifting project over the last 20 years. You could do it. If you went to Israel, you could make an appointment. You could go and sift a little dirt and see what you could find. Over 500,000 artifacts have been found uh, through this process, and hardly any of them have been studied. This is such a big undertaking that they permit all sorts of people to do it because it takes so long to do it and to get what they're looking for. And they found something that is pretty common. In sifting this dirt from up on the Temple Mount, they keep coming across these 
broken pieces of clay or terracotta. Some of them are broken legs. Some of them are broken arms. Some of them are feet. Some of them are hands. Some of them are heads. And it's the most common thing to find. And they date from the days of Hezekiah and Josiah. That's where, the, where the, all these pieces keep coming from, date from. And they're just fragments. And it's interesting that they've processed about three quarters of this dirt that was thrown off the mountain. And it's tons of dirt. They processed about three quarters of it. And they haven't found a whole figurine yet. A whole idol or figure of a man, or figure of a woman, or figure of a horse, or a man on horseback yet. Not a single one. They found hundreds and hundreds of pieces, but no intact idols. Now, why would one expect to find so many broken arms and legs and so forth from images from the period of Hezekiah and Josiah. Any guesses there? I can see some nodding heads because that was the time of great revival, right? And there was a great revival under Hezekiah. And what did Hezekiah do? He gathered all the images and what did he do to them? He broke them. He smashed them. He crushed them. And Josiah did the same thing and the Bible tells you that. So if you were looking for broken images and you were looking in strata and saying, where in the history of Jerusalem should we look for a big pile of broken images? You would say, well, in the days of Hezekiah. So you go there and you look, and in the days of Hezekiah, there it is. All these broken pieces of images scattered around in there. So you expect to find it because of the policy of those two kings during the time of revival. And again, it makes sense that if you wanted to find it, that's where you would go to look for it because that's where the Bible directs you to go. A whole array of stones and rocks and, and, and seals, clay seals and shattered fragments cry out, really, in a relentless chorus to the truth of God's word. In Psalm 148, and verses, verses 7 through 13, these stones join this course. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and, and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all the rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. And these stones just add their voice to that testimony. Now back on that fateful day in Jerusalem, when Jesus replied to the Pharisees, his words marked a dramatic change. This was a reply on the part of the Savior, unlike any he had ever given before. 
Prior to this, as we mentioned a moment ago, he had avoided the attention of the people. He had warned them against being too public with what he had done. And in some instances, he even quietly disappeared from their midst. You remember, they wanted to seize him and make him a king, and he, he disappeared out of their midst. But now, he doesn't do anything to inhibit the attention that's being brought to him on this day as he enters Jerusalem. He's very much present in their view, and he's at the center of their attention, so much so that the Pharisees are, are, are angry about it. And it's clear to them that if men and women and children are praising him, that he is receiving this gladly and freely. And that's why they say to him, tell him to be quiet. Tell him to stop doing this. And yet Jesus doesn't. Instead, he just says, if they don't do it, the stones will. And if you ask, why this change now? I think I would reply, because the cross is so near. The cross is so near. It's as if he was saying, let the eyes of all follow me now. Follow me down into that city. Follow me to the cross. Follow me to the empty tomb. Uh, first to the tomb and then to the empty tomb. Let the eyes of all be upon me now. I'm going down to offer myself for sins. And the events we're looking at began to unfold earlier in this in Luke chapter 18. In other words, where Jesus says this at the end, if if they were quiet, the stones would cry out. That whole scene where Jesus comes down into the city and so on is introduced with these words in Luke chapter 18 and verse 31. Jesus takes the 12 and he says to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamelessly treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. See, see, right at the beginning of this, as, he, as all this starts to unfold, he says, watch. That's what he says to his disciples. Watch now. We're going up to Jerusalem. And going up there, this is going to be what's going to happen. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be murdered. And then the third day, I will rise. So watch me now. Watch me. And so when it comes to this moment... When the Pharisees say, rebuke your disciples and stop them from looking at you, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let their eyes follow me into the city and all that follows. About 60 years ago, archaeologists were digging around the theater in Caesarea on the Israelite coast. And they found a stone plaque. And it said in plain words, that it was dedicated to the emperor Tiberius by the prefect of Judea, whose name was Pontius Pilate. 
That's the only known place where his name appears in any inscription outside of the Bible, of course. In other words, there's no other evidence in an inscription anywhere that Pontius Pilate was even alive ever, except in the Bible. And when this stone was found, it didn't confirm the Bible. It destroyed the critics who tried to say that Pontius Pilate really wasn't that influential and didn't have so much a part in things as the Christians say he did. It's wonderful to study, to examine the testimony of the rocks and the stones regarding the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. They're more obvious, like the rocks that split at the crucifixion, the stone rolled away from the tomb, but there are others, like the unhewn stones to be used for altars in the Old Testament. Don't touch it, the Lord said, because if you touch it, you'll defile it. So you can't make a sacrifice for me that in that way. I'll, you just put the altar up made out of the stones I made, but don't you touch it. The rock, the, the rock excuse me, that gushed water, life-saving water in the wilderness, the memorial stones in the middle of the Jordan, all these and other examples point to the cross, the grave, and the resurrection. And this week, as we talk about the evidences produced by archaeologists, our goal is really the same for the children who will be in Bible school, to show how the rocks and the stones, the clay and the papyri, all direct our attention to the rock of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, who believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. We want to use the rocks and the stones and the witness of archaeology to draw children to the story of the cross and redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. David said, he only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless these thoughts to us this afternoon. And we pray, Lord, that they will encourage us in the work that lies ahead this week. Father, we'll give thought to the fact that through the witness of these things, we are drawing young hearts and young minds to see the cross, the grave, the resurrection, and the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to find in him their own salvation, so that he becomes their rock and their fortress. Lord, they're blessed thereby. Father, may your hand of grace be upon us as we do so. We ask it all in Jesus' name.